Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So this week's episode is focused on primary care networks and the role of the clinical director. Even if you're not a clinical director and you don't work in a primary care network, there's so many leadership and management lessons that you can take from this episode. I'm joined by Dr. Faris Al-Ramadani. Faris is a GP partner. He is a primary care network clinical director. And he also has got an interest in health tech and provides consultancy to health tech organisations and VCs. Amongst many things in this episode, we discuss the importance of creating a team, especially when you have got a dispersed workforce working across multiple locations. Faris shares his approach to satisfying the needs of the most and also satisfying the needs of the loudest and gives a really good example on how he turned that feedback into something really collaborative and really great. Faris is really, really positive about primary care networks and did mention that he thought that one of the dangers to primary care is primary care itself and sometimes the negativity around how we talk about this sector. So I absolutely love this conversation and I definitely can't wait to welcome Faris back to the podcast for a part two so he can share more of his approach and so that we can learn from him. Enjoy. Hey, Faris, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm all right, Tara. Not too bad, thank you. Before we started, I was just moaning, I've got a case of tonsillitis at the moment, so my voice might sound a little bit funny and I'm a bit flatter than normal, but we're doing all right, so I can't complain too much. Oh, well, I really appreciate you making the time to do this. Would you be able to share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name's Faris Al-Ramadani. I'm a GP partner at a practice called St. Wolfston Surgery in Southam. That's in South Warwickshire. I'm also a primary care network clinical director for Warwickshire East PCN. And I also do some consultancy with health tech companies as well. How long have you been a clinical director for? Oh, I've been doing it now for about three and a bit years in this role. I think it's about three and a half years. It goes so quickly that you sometimes forget, but I think we're up to about that by now. And what attracted you to the position? It was interesting, really. I became a GP partner at a practice, which was what I always wanted to do. So I went into medicine with the intention of ending up as a GP partner, mostly because I was really interested about how I could help contribute to the running of an organisation and help improve patient care directly through that organisation. So that's kind of how I went into GP. 
And then I had an interest in the wider health system and the wider health economy. And that led me into a role at the CCG at the time. So I was a GP associate at our CCG and I absolutely loved it. It was really, really interesting. It was great at sort of working at that next level above higher population level. Really, really good. And then obviously the big change happened from CCGs to ICBs. And that led to a change. And at that point, I was no longer working for the CCG and sort of PCN clinical director role became the sort of next best thing. I think it felt like a natural evolution from the CCG role into that clinical director role. To be honest, what really motivated me to go into it was the idea that actually this looks like the future direction of travel. And actually, there's a lot of resource coming into this that we could really use and utilize to create new forms of care and new treatment and new ways of managing and helping patients. I saw it as a really big opportunity to push the quality and the level of care that we were offering in primary care to another level, really. So that was all good. And then also it's kind of that exciting thing of actually having a project. You're taking something brand new and fresh and thinking about what you can do with it. How do you take an organization, which is essentially what it is in a sort of informal way, and sort of grow it into something that can really make a difference to people? So that was a really sort of strong motivating factor. Okay, lots to unpick there. How many practices in your primary care network? We've got five practices. And population size? About 35,000. So I obviously love primary care networks, but I have never, ever heard somebody describe it as good, exciting, brand new, fresh, and the opportunity to grow. (laughs) Do you still think that? Yeah, too right. Yeah, definitely I do. Definitely I do. It's really sad, right? There's often some real strong overlying narratives that we hear. There is this culture of negativity, I think, a lot of the time. And I think we really have to move away from it. I think one of the dangers to primary care is primary care itself, right? Because if we're pessimistic and we're negative about those opportunities, then we're not going to harness them. Not only are we not going to harness them, but we're going to damage our future recruitment potential and the sustainability of primary care in itself. I think it's absolutely the way that you look at it, the way that you perceive it and you create your own narrative. So for me, if you take it, really what we're looking at is an opportunity to bring a group and a collection of surgeries together to share best practice, to share learning, to provide moral support to one another, to identify ways to work better, to utilize a brand new workforce who bring new skills and qualities and a more diverse workforce. And then funding that's gone along with that to deliver new services. So, yeah, totally. I think it's what you make of it. But definitely from what we've seen, for me, the evidence is that this is a real opportunity. We have to make the most of that opportunity. And I think now we're moving into a new phase, if you like, with the talk of neighborhood teams that I see that we've got the opportunity to now move forward. So if you like the way that I perceive the primary care network is it's a genuine vehicle for putting primary care at the center of the new evolving health service that we're sort of building at the moment. So for me, it's quite empowering. I know many people see it very differently, but it might sound a bit alien, I I can imagine, to some. What roles do you employ in your primary care network? We have digital transformation lead. We've got social prescribing link workers, care coordinators, FCPs and clinical pharmacists. And during the recruitment process, so recruitment is very challenging, depending where you are in the country, but you've got your new network, really keen and enthusiastic about it. I'm sure there will be a range of enthusiasm in your network, and that's normal. Not everybody will be at the same level. 
How did you communicate and sell the roles that you wanted to bring into the network? Or was it the practices themselves that said we would really benefit from a social prescriber? How did you approach recruitment? Really good question. And I suppose it was in some way strategic. So obviously, we've got the DES. There is a requirement within the DES to deliver service. So as part of that, you will need clinical pharmacists and social prescribing link workers at the bare minimum. So in the early days, recruitment was essentially driven by the requirements of the DES and the requirement to deliver and develop those services that were required as part of the contract. So the start of it was sort of straightforward in that respect. And then I think the exciting part was then how do you then use those members of staff to create new services that perhaps you see a deficiency? So pain management, for example, there's a big black hole in how we manage patients with chronic pain. But actually, as a GP practice, you'll often find that the same patients are coming and coming over again, having medication that doesn't really make a difference. So it's up titrated, but it's still not making a difference. And actually, you're never really getting to the bottom of what's going on. So by bringing in some of these professionals, as we needed to as part of the contract, we could then start to be a bit more creative about what are the services that we need to be offering and delivering that will A, help practices because they've got high patient demand where they're not getting the outcomes that the patient or the practice want. And then how are we going to use these new services to identify unmet needs that those patients might be suffering with? So bringing in the health and wellbeing coaches, you could then say, well, actually, what can health and wellbeing coaching do that we've never done before to try and help these patients? And theoretically, if we give that patient more of what they actually need, which is sort of that broader, more holistic, time heavy approach that the health and wellbeing coaches are able to offer them, then actually you start to get a better outcome for the practice and for the patient. So probably initially driven by the DARES, but then out of that were the potential opportunities that we could see and then we could recruit around those. I think the big question mark that we've got now and the big piece of work that we are doing at the moment is how do we satisfy the needs of the DARES and what the PCN needs to be delivering, but also bringing in those healthcare professionals that the practices need as well and deliver the services that they need within the practice to bolster access as we've been requested to do and bolster resilience within the practice. We've got a real challenge of how we do that. You know, how do you sort of manage the expectations of both sides? So that will drive recruitment intentions around this moment in time. But yeah, really difficult, really difficult to sort of balance each of those requirements. Should the network be driven by the DES or should it be driven by the needs of the network? And then you just make the DES work. The contract is not the driving force. There you've got a really difficult proposition, haven't you? Because the contract exists and that's what we subscribe to, so that's what we've got to deliver. So that is what we need to do. But does it need to be the be all and end all? No, it doesn't. And actually, the way that I've perceived this is the contract, if you like, is sort of the bedrock, really. It's that foundation. These are the musts in terms of what you should deliver, but they're very loose. They're not highly specific. So they don't tie you up to saying that if you do these, you will be able to do nothing else at all. But they're almost sort of bare bone requirements. And then and I think once you've got those in place, then there's enough flexibility in terms of the funding model, the ARS staff that we can recruit that actually you can be much more creative after that. So I think like most of this or like almost everything that we do, there's kind of like a hybrid or there's you've got to please many different camps all at the same time. And it's just making sure that we're ticking those boxes almost. I don't like to use that term, but if you're satisfying a contract, then you do need to tick a box. But actually the requirement or the resource that we're given allows us to do more than just that. So I think that's where the opportunity lies. But if we merely exist to satisfy the contract, then we're completely ignoring all the real benefits that we can see. But if the contract says that the requirement is that you have a social prescribing service, 
and not much more than that, then that by extension means, well, we need some social prescribers, but actually it's up to us to interpret where those social prescribers can work and how they can work and the target populations that they're going to look at. So I think there's enough flexibility to make sure that it can be local solutions to local problems. So what is your role as a clinical director? What do you do? That's a really good question, isn't it? (laughs) Because a bit of everything, really. (laughs) So it really is a little bit of everything. So I would say my primary responsibilities are to ensure that the primary care network delivers what's required in the DES. That's our obligation. But the reality is that then that goes down much further. The responsibility that I then have, that I believe that I have, is to have a primary care network team, and that's the ARS staff, essentially. They are often new to primary care and this space. So it's about making sure that they feel welcome, that they feel like they're coming into an environment that they can see the values and they can express those values. So we've got quite a strong emphasis on being a really friendly team, but a really innovative, hardworking team that's really patient-centric. And I think what we've done really well is those are the sorts of values that we've recruited on. And those are the sorts of values that our staff display all the time. And even when we've gone out to surveys with the staff, one of the nice questions that we always ask from from a practice and a PCM perspective when we're surveying our staff is what three words would you use to describe the organization? And I think it's really good when actually the feedback that you get from the staff resonates with the objective, right? So it means that you're kind of on the same wavelength doing the same thing. So what I feel as a clinical director is I need to set up the framework so that the staff feel they're part of an organization that has those values and that they can display those values within that organization. And I think one of the things that I've noticed from the starting point, there's kind of a very small team. Well, there's almost no team around you. So you're kind of having to do all the work yourself. And it's really, really hard. And what I really like now is as clinical director, as we've grown with more staff, is I can actually stand back a little bit from that and say, well, what are your ideas? What are the problems that you've found? And what are the solutions that you're identifying to those? So one of the most satisfying meetings that I ever sit in is our PCN staff meeting. So every month, all of our PCN staff, as in the ARS staff, have a meeting. And then we basically just talk to each team, what's going on, what's going well, what's not going well, what can we help with? So we're kind of always building those networks. The first thing is we're building a really integrated system because actually they're referring patients between them, which is great. But also we're empowering those members of staff to actually come up with the new solution. So in a way, I sometimes feel like I'm a facilitator almost to try and help those solutions be resolved and develop those new services. Many of the new services that we're developing are from the ARS staff themselves. And that is a really great position to be in because actually those staff are professionals in their own right and they are being empowered to find new services, to develop new services. And then me being able to support them is really, you know, really satisfying. And then the last thing I suppose is making sure that I'm providing some strategic leadership. So I now need to do less on an operational front, whereas I had to do that before. But now I'm in a position where I can be more strategic about where is the PCN going? Where do we see the PCN being in a few years time? And how do we make sure that the PCN is in a prominent role to develop and deliver those new services in the next three to five years, but also the PCN needing to support the practices to make sure that they are going to thrive and flourish over the next three to five years? If your team are so integrated, why do you have a primary care network team meeting that only includes your primary care network staff? 
That would be possible. And this is where it is difficult because this is where the reality is you do have different organizations under different rules of employment. So it is a bit more difficult to do that. And I think one of the things it's been really important to build them as a team because they are the identity of the PCN, if you like, because they are doing the work for the PCN, employed by the PCN. We do obviously have the PCN board meetings where we bring together all of the practices and we do also or have also previously arranged gatherings where we bring the staff, the PCN staff and invite the practice staff as well. So we have done those. I think the one thing you have to do is always be wary of the resource within the practices. So practices are under pressure and under time pressure, and they don't want to be going to lots of different meetings. And attending meetings is difficult for practices when they are working flat out. I think it would be difficult to expect them to give up their resource to join those meetings. But also those meetings need to be a space where the PCN staff can talk about any feelings they've got about particular practices they're working in, particular areas that they're struggling in. And actually, they need a platform where they can talk really freely, you know. So sometimes if they're not getting on with somebody in a practice, at least they've got this as a place to come to where they can express any thoughts or concerns. And then as the management team, we can then take that away and try and resolve those issues for them. So I think there would definitely be benefits and there might be future benefits in terms of having more hybrid meetings like that. But I suppose the primary function of that PCN team meeting was to enable them to build their relationships as a team, as a function, and provide them with a space where they can talk about concerns when they're struggling at a particular practice or that sort of thing. So swings and roundabouts, I think. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. Did you have a Christmas party? Yeah, we did have a Christmas party. We had a PCN Christmas party. We had a surgery Christmas party and everyone in the PCN was invited to the surgery Christmas party too. So really important. And I like it, Tara, because it's like we need to be building the PCN team into the practices and embedding them. And yeah, certainly from a practice perspective, all of our PCN were invited to our surgery Christmas party and many attended. So that was really nice to see. I'm part of a Facebook group and there were two posts on Christmas parties that were like the most popular posts of the year. I was so surprised. And the reason why I bring it up is because for those of you not in a primary care network, the easiest way to describe it is a group of general practices coming together. So I might work for a primary care network. And if that primary care network has got four practices in it, I will be working potentially across four different practices, four different organizations employed by the primary care network. And that sense of team and belonging is really important. And I think that when I posted in the Facebook group, just asking, thinking nobody would respond, 
do you have a Christmas party? Like, how do you manage it? And there were so many responses. And one person posted anonymously to say that she'd worked in her network for three years and had never been invited to a Christmas party. I really, really felt for that person. And some practices invited some people and not other people. And I think that it may seem flippant, but it's really, really important that when you've got a dispersed team, a lot of time and effort and facilitation needs to go into making sure people feel wanted and valued and inviting people to a Christmas party or a summer party or saying happy birthday. It's those things that will keep your staff. It's not always the salary. They just want to feel like they're seen and they're like, oh, hi, Tara, do you want a cup of tea? Versus your PCM, I'm practice. And there is a clear distinction that you do PCN work and you work wherever and you only come here a couple of hours a week. My question to you is in your network, is your PCN an extension of your practices or seen as separate to your practices? That's a really good question because there's lots of different facets to that that make it really complicated. So, for example, our clinical pharmacists were working. And I remember, I think I listened to one of your previous podcasts where someone was talking about the fact they had a clinical pharmacist that worked across eight practices and the practices said we never see them. And then, it, well, that's inevitable, right? You work across eight practices, you're never going to see them. And I think that's what's really difficult. And, and that's why I think the absolute bare minimum that we can do is make sure that the PCN team knows that they're a team and they're working together so that they don't feel like lone rangers out in the wilderness. So I think that's really critical that they believe that they're part of a network and that is their team. You know, that's their safe place, right? That's the place they can always fall back into. But all of them will be working across practices. We had a situation where we had pharmacists, you know, one pharmacist would be across five practices, but we would have five pharmacists working across five practices. It didn't really work because actually the role of a pharmacist was different from a social prescribing link worker. A social prescribing link worker is less necessarily embedded in the internal procedures of the practice. So they don't need to work at a specific practice level because actually the role will be the same across all of the different practices. So they can float around very easily and move around and do that job really well working across all five. But if you take the role of a pharmacist, different practices have different systems in terms of the way that they prescribe their medication, patients order their medication, they review their medication, they recall patients. So it's really specific to the practice. So that becomes a really tall order. So we then move to sort of make our social prescribers work across the patch, but our pharmacists work within practices so that they work with just one or two practices. So if you're in as a pharmacist, you probably find yourself much more integrated because it's the sheer time that you're spending inside a smaller number of practices. But actually for the social prescribers, that's a different challenge because actually their time will be spread across the patch. So I think it just depends on the member of staff, that professional role, what they're doing and how much that role needs to be integrated into those sort of internal working. So it's really dependent on the professional. But I think as a PCN, the bare minimum is we need to know that everyone in that PCN is part of that PCN family. And then those members of staff who work more with specific practices will no doubt become more embedded with those practices and hopefully be more the fabric of those practices. But it's kind of one of those things that the more that you invest, the more you get out, right? And that's the same with anything in life. The more you put into it, the more you get out. The more that a practice works to integrate staff and make them feel welcome, the more they're going to get the buyback from that member of staff, right? The more that member of staff is going to give in terms of their work, in terms of their ethic and what they're providing to the practice. So there's a responsibility on all sides really to make sure that it works, I think. Is your PCN an extension of your practices or seen as separate? I think it is sometimes a mixture of both, depending on the function. Yeah, you see, I wiggled out of it. (laughs) 
wiggled out of it, Tara. <laughs> Let me try and uh, explain my wiggling nature on that question. <laughs> but I think if you take certain services, so let's take a health and well-being coach is delivering a pain management service. Well, that pain management service that they deliver is the same across the patch. So that, if you like, might feel like something separate from the practice. They're referring into it as they might be referring into a secondary care service or an external provider service. So in some respects, that might to the practice feel like it's separate. So that function of the PCN doesn't really feel like it's you know part of us. But if you look at, say, the clinical pharmacist that is part of the PCN, but working within practice and they go into that practice three, four days a week, well, actually, that feels like an integration, right? We've got enhanced access, or that feels like an integration. Um, the PCN, when it came to COVID vaccinations and ordering of COVID vaccinations and the management of that, which is all being done by the PCN, well, actually, that felt like an extension of the practices. So there's a hybrid of both, depending on which service or which aspect you're looking at. But I suppose what you're probably getting at is you probably want the feeling as integrated as possible. And hopefully there is that because obviously the board that meets as the PCN has representation from all of the practices. So they're therefore built into that decision making process and running the PCN as democratically as possible means that hopefully you get more of that. As somebody that works in PCNs, I don't have all of the answers and it's incredibly complex, even in the best performing networks people perceive things differently. It's hard to get everybody in one organization singing from the same hymn sheet, let alone three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So I'm not here to say it's just an interesting question. It's thought provoking. And actually it's not always cut and dry. Some people may say, absolutely it's an extension. I don't see any different. You know, I've got some networks that say we are one. The only difference is how people are paid. But other than that, it doesn't make any difference. And then in other networks, they say, no, yet yeah, that is PCM. That's not my work. I do practice work and they do PCM work and it's different, but it also works. So I'm not trying to catch you. It's not black and white. Yeah, I think you're right. And it isn't black and white and it is difficult. And actually, it was a really tall order to develop PCNs, wasn't it? And often get a group of practices who had never spoken to each other necessarily before to work together. It's a huge challenge. Just like anywhere else, really, I think primary care in itself is, you know, what makes it so good is how nimble it is and how it is embedded in a community. And what one practice does is not the same as the other practice, because actually everyone is constantly adapting to the needs of their population. And that's kind of what makes primary care really special. So I think what you don't need is one top down approach to this is what it should look like everywhere. And I think that would just be a recipe for absolute disaster. I think what's really nice about primary care having worked in hospital trust before where you know is a big organization a very top down top heavy actually primary care is so refreshing in that it's from the ground upwards and i think that's what was good with pcns was actually there was a little bit of the ability to managing themselves self-governing themselves to some degree and actually there was the scope to have some flexibility with how they operate so i think you're right tara and i think that you've got to find what works for you and i think you have to make sure that people are respected within that environment and I think as long as you can achieve that, as long as you can sort of keep good, friendly relations and people with respecting one another's opinions, and you've got a better chance there. It's so interesting. You've just said you need to try and find what works for you. And I'm frantically scribbling down. And I think it goes back to when I said, what do you do? And initially you said, my job is to help the network meet its contractual obligations to foster that good sense of team and strategic leadership. There's so much more. Yes, those are three nice, succinct headings, but there is so much more. And when you've just said it's finding what works for you, and I think as the leader, 
a leader. It's finding what works for you, finding what works for your primary care network team. And there'll be a variety of expectations, needs, wants, demands. Then you've got your practices and all the different personalities in your practice. And you said, make sure it's friendly and respectful. That's the job of the clinical director. You know, like trying to navigate and help people that may not have an understanding of primary care understand the different politics and the hierarchy and the language and the different organisational cultures across your five practices on top of your PCN organisational culture. Yeah, I think you're right. Trying to whittle down the role of the PCN clinical director to a few lines is near impossible, right? Because it is that broad role that it's really difficult to do that. Because what you've also got to think about is, you know, you're often liaising with external organisations, the trust, the ICB. You've got a lot there. And I suppose, and I'm just thinking aloud, really, I haven't thought about the answer here, but I suppose it's just having a focus on what it is you're trying to achieve. The best point, right, when things work the best is when they satisfy the needs of the most. And what that means is if the PCN is able to deliver or develop a service which improves patient outcomes, the quality of the service the patient receives and their outcomes, but also helps the practice perhaps by reducing the demand on the practice, the burden on the practice, reducing the number of appointments that might need to be generated by this thing we're solving, then you've got a really sweet spot there where you're doing the best for the patient, but you're doing the best for the practice. And I think when you find those avenues, those are the bits that really work the best. And that's where the PCN really comes into its element. And I think the current PCN contract that's looking at access was about how do we utilize the PCN and its functions and its team to help improve access at practice level. And that's a really simple thing, right? But it's potentially really, really good. So for example, a solution there that we looked at was the social prescribers would have a duty list. So if someone called the practice and had more of a social need, they'd often still be put in with a GP because it was the only option. But actually now they can be booked directly with the social prescriber who'll speak to them the same day. That was something that we developed with the social prescribers who led on developing that idea. But you then have a solution where the social prescribers are improving access at a practice because they're taking that appointment immediately dealing with themselves. So it's great for the practice because that's one less GP appointment or one GP appointment saved. And it's great for the patient because they're speaking to the right person the first time. They're not just speaking to a GP who's going to go, well, I'll refer you on for this and delay then in any sort of treatment. So when you find those avenues, those are the bits that work really well where it's best for patient and it's best for practice. And I think as a clinical director, one of the best parts of the job is when you start to identify some of those, those win-wins, if you like. The same thing with health and well-being coaches. So, you know, we've got health and well-being coaches doing pain management on a group level. So they're giving group therapy to patients that suffer chronic pain. When we've looked at this cohort of patients, they've often been seeing the GP time and time and time again and actually not really progressing. So it's a big burden in the practice because it's lots of appointments. And it's also a big burden on the clinician because they're actually not moving any further forward. And we like to help people and we realize we're not helping some individuals. Whereas actually, if we move those patients, we refer them to a health and well-being coach doing group therapy sessions where there's a peer element, it's more holistic, there's more time that can be spent on a group level, then actually you start to get much bigger wins. And that's a win for the patient because they get what they really needed was that more holistic approach. And in that group environment where they support one another, it's great for the patient, but it's also great for the practice. So when you start to see those, you're then seeing how the PCN is really enabling new forms of treatment, new methods of intervention, which are really helping everybody, even though you might not necessarily see it immediately. I love that. And I think PCN managers listen to this. I think I would rewind that section. But I also just wanted to add that 
we want to focus on satisfying the needs of the most, but sometimes what can happen is that we end up satisfying the needs of the loudest. Absolutely right. And it's really hard. And sometimes we discount all of the other good work because there may be particular issue, typically around equity. It's a real risk. And I think the downside of the clinical director job, the great bit is the clinical bit and all that. The downside can be the politics side, right, where you might have louder voices that might want something that others don't. And it's a really fine balance. And I think that there's no easy answer to that. I think you have to deal with every situation according to the situation. Sometimes maybe what you'll find is there's a wet, there's a hybrid. There's often a way of satisfying the needs of everybody if we just think creatively enough about it. And I think that's the bit that maybe makes the clinical director job really hard is you've got lots of different practices and you're trying to make sure that each one is getting what they need. So when you're trying to develop something, you always have to be trying to develop something that will meet the needs of all of them. And I think that's the challenge. And I think it's really just on a decision by decision basis, really, or a problem by problem basis. So, yeah, you don't want to just succumb to the loudest voice, but actually, what is that loudest voice telling you? Why is it telling you? And actually, how do you then enhance your solution based on that feedback, right? So that is the real art. And that's the bit that's really interesting, you know, like working on some proactive care work at the moment. And what was really satisfying was basically I wrote down on a piece of paper, this is what a proactive care project should look like. And this is how we should deliver it. I went back to the PCN staff and the PCN staff said, you know, I just don't like that. I just think you're being a bit too old school about it, you know, getting us to fill in a checklist and (laughs) <laughs> I thought, you know what? You're absolutely right. Okay, let's change that. And then someone else said, well, actually, from my role as a care coordinator, I think you should be doing this. And the social prescriber would say, well, I think it should look a bit more like this. And so from the starting point, which is what I thought I'd done, we ended up with something completely different. So my ideas have been blown out of the water, demolished and... <laughs> and taken apart but you know what it really didn't matter because actually you could have been a bit funny about it couldn't you and say well why are you having a go at my plan or you could turn it around and say well actually i believe you're trying to make this better so why don't we incorporate your ideas and then at the end the great part is when you've got this collection of thoughts and ideas that actually ends up as a coherent solution for me those are the most satisfying ones what was left on the paper was nothing like I wrote down, was nothing that I owned, because what I owned had just been washed away or refined, whichever way you look at it. But the outcome was a collective piece of work. And that was so great to see. And that was, for me, the feeling of actually, this is co-development, right? That's what co-development looks like. It's not about me. I'm a clinical director. This is my solution. No, not at all. The best I can do is try and steer a collective of people with different thoughts and ideas towards a better outcome and a better solution. And I suppose that's just something that's just off the top of my mind because it was only last week or week before. But actually, that probably feeds into the whole satisfying the needs of the loudest. So actually, let's just turn it around and say, well, what are the loudest contributing towards the potential solution that we can then feed into a better outcome? I like that. So you mentioned your role was you're kind of moving more out of the operational stuff and more looking at the network from a strategic point of view and to understand where the network is going. So where is your network going? Wow. So we're looking into the future now. (laughs) So where is the network going? So over the last 12 months, I've had a feel that it needed to consolidate. So there'd been mass expansion in the number of employees. So the workforce had grown really quickly, right? So the last 12 months was about let's consolidate the team that we've got. I think I've heard you talk about this before, Tara, as well. When there's new funding available, you recruit really quickly. Are you recruiting the right people? And I think that's a trap. So don't recruit 
just for the sake of the fact there's some money there and you just want the staff recruit on values. So definitely values based recruitment to make sure that you've got a team that's coherent. And I think we've done that and we've consolidated that team over the last five months. So I think we've got to a, a really nice point where we've got a core PCN team that we're really happy with. Moving forwards, the things that we're going to have to do as a PCN is we're going to have to remain agile. So when new contracts and new opportunities become available, we need to be quick and nimble enough to seize those opportunities so that our patients realize the benefit of those opportunities. So that's just like a standard. We just got to be able to do that. The move, I suppose, that we're seeing now is into the neighborhood teams. And obviously, according to the Fuller report, there is a real steer in terms of where primary care and where the NHS is going and what people want it to look like. It feels like neighborhood teams are the thing. And it seems quite natural that the PCN will be a core component of that neighborhood team. And I think that's where the PCN is going to need to position itself is, if you like, a serious partner in that neighborhood team or as a leader of that neighborhood team. It will stand in a unique position with the way that it feeds into practices and essentially is the practices, meaning that it is that direct interface with the patient on the ground. So I think the PCNs need to be finding that space and finding their role within that. To be a substantial partner in that, then we need to be well organized. We need to be efficient. We need to be well managed. And I think that's where the management of the PCN is absolutely 100% vocal to whether this is a success or not. So I think the PCN needs to position itself in that. But it opens up loads of opportunities in that role. So I use the term co-development before. The buzzwords that float around my head that I feel really resonate inside the chambers of my brain right now anyway are co-development and patient-centric. Those are, for me, the two phrases that should encapsulate what we do over the next five years. Solutions co-developed, meaning that we incorporate the views, the skills, the resources of all to co-develop integrated solutions and also making it patient-centric. So what we've tried to do as a PCN is move away from traditional sort of diagrams of what a patient pathway should look like and actually just say, well, it's got to have the patient right in the middle. So the patient is the middle. It's the patient-centric part. And our services, if they're going to be really good, need to look really slick to the patient. They need to be accessible. They need to have as few contact points as necessary, so not being shifted around different parts of the system. And I think the PCM will have a role to play there and could be a really fundamental role in terms of making sure that patient care is delivered within the neighborhood, which is where the patients want it delivered, but that it's co-developed and therefore integrated and really patient-centric. For me, that's what the PCM should be doing. And it should continue to support practices to thrive. So it should continue to deliver that way of working that means that practices have that support. My final question to you is when it comes to primary care networks, finish this sentence. So when it comes to primary care networks, I shouldn't say this, but. That's tricky, isn't it, Tara? (laughs) (laughs) Could carry on my positive narrative and say, I shouldn't say this, but I probably should say that the future should be positive within the primary care networks. Look, I probably shouldn't say this, but the role of a clinical director within primary care networks is really, 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 really hard, but it's absolutely worth it. Faris, I could talk to you. I think when we first spoke, we just went on and on and on. I think there's like a part two coming. You've said, like, this is the future. And then the next question is, okay, well, how are you doing that? But we've run out of time today. Thank you so much. If people want to contact you directly, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, feel free. LinkedIn, probably the easiest platform these days. So you can find me on LinkedIn and happy to take any messages. But yeah, a part two sounds good. More than happy to talk about what we're doing with regards to all that. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.